Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, and we are now on verse 8, and we'll be going to the end of the chapter. Uh, So we will be reading Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 to 30. Let's hear now God's word. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men grow hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. 
Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word of our God. Let's pray for his blessing as we come to look at his word. Oh Lord, we desire to come to your law and to your testimony, to hear from your word what is right and what is wrong. You warn us not to add or to take away from your word. And so we pray that you would reveal to us and help us to understand these truths in your word that are hard for us to hear, hard for us to accept in our sinful state. We pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, to give us insight and understanding and faith to believe the reality of what your word says and not what we think. We desire to submit ourselves to you and we desire to know you, that we might live for your glory. We ask, Lord, that you would glorify your name by giving us your spirit to understand these things. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the late 70s, a cult leader convinced hundreds of people to move to Guyana in South America. And he is most famous, infamous, I guess, for convincing about 900 people to die. Uh, He told them that they all needed to die on that day. And so he had everybody pass around some drinks Uh, that most people call Kool-Aid, but the company Kool-Aid wants you to be sure that it wasn't real Kool-Aid. But he told them to pass around this flavor mixture of drink that we refer to as Kool-Aid and to drink it. And hundreds of people died that day because that Kool-Aid was mixed with poison. Now, some of those people did not know that the Kool-Aid was mixed with poison, but it seems that the vast majority of them knew what they were doing. And so the question is, what would make people kill themselves by drinking a Kool-Aid mixed with poison? And of course, the answer is that they were very deceived. They were very brainwashed. And so we have this phrase now, in our day when we say about people that they are drinking the Kool-Aid. And drinking the Kool-Aid means that people are very blind to the truth or that they're very deceived about something or that they just want to follow the crowd. Now, in that case, it wasn't a bunch of people drinking Kool-Aid because they wanted to follow what everybody else was doing and they didn't realize it. No, 
they were all following this one leader. But this is what the term has come to mean. Drinking the Kool-Aid means following the crowd and just believing whatever you're told. Well, we could say about Israel that Israel in Isaiah's day has come to the point where in that sense they are drinking the Kool-Aid. They are, as Isaiah is going to say, calling evil good and good evil. They are so self-deceived that they can look at something that is evil and call it good. And so Isaiah's job as a prophet is to warn them and to call this out, to tell them what sin really is, to tell them that what they are calling good is actually evil and what they're calling evil is actually good. And his job also is to warn them, to tell them that this evil that they're committing because they're so deceived is going to bring on them the judgment of God. That God's woes are coming upon them. And so this is what we see in this passage. Isaiah preaching woe after woe after woe. There are six of them that he mentions. He mentions them and then you'll notice in between he'll stick in a, a therefore. Which is telling them the judgment that is coming upon them because of their woes. And then he goes back to the woes again and again and again with another therefore at the end to warn them of the coming judgment. And so that's really the point of this passage, a warning to define what sin really is and what, define, what, is, uh, what is defined by sin, what qualifies as sin, and then to tell them of the judgment that is coming. And so for us, this passage applies very much to the times that we are living in. For us, we need to make sure, we need to beware that we are getting our definition of sin from the Word of God, from what the Bible calls right and wrong. Those of you who are younger and you are growing up in this culture with all of its messages and you have exposure to all kinds of things in the media, in social media, maybe on different devices. You need to understand that there is a culture around you that is trying to get you to drink the Kool-Aid. They are trying to get you to call evil good and good evil. And so we need to beware uh, that we understand what sin is. But this passage also applies to us as Christians in that we need to think about our attitude towards the world around us. If you were there in Guyana and you saw people drinking that Kool-Aid, what do you think your responsibility would be? Would it be to laugh at them? Would it be to mock them for being so stupid that they would do such a thing? Or wouldn't your responsibility be to plead with them, plead that they would save their lives by not drinking the Kool-Aid, by turning from what they were about to do 
so that they might live. And this is another challenge that this passage brings to us as we live in this society today. So let's begin looking at the passage. First, we want to ask, what is it that brings woe? In other words, what are these sins that Isaiah is calling out? And then we'll talk about what is this woe that is coming upon them. But first, what is it that brings woe? So he names six woes, uh, six times you'll see that word woe in there. Uh, I condensed it into four because a couple of them you can uh, put together as you will see. Now, the first woe, what, what is it that brings woe? First, Isaiah calls out their materialism, their materialism. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of of the land. Woe to those who join house to house. Now, what is going on here? Is God against townhomes? Is God against row houses? Why does it why is it a woe to join house to house? There's a particular problem going on in the 8th century of Judah, and that is rich people snatching up a bunch of land. And as they are snatching up land, they are taking away land for other people to live in. And remember that this land is promised land. It's given by God. And so God allots to them a certain amount of land. He divvies it up by tribes. And so there is only a certain amount that is there for people to live on. And based on your tribe, your family, you live in this one area. But the rich are snatching up all that land. Or you can think about it as uh, a, a man and his cousin, and they have one acre of land that they are both sharing and living on. But one man, he has more money, and so he decides to add on to his house. So the cousin has a house, and the, the rich man has a house. The rich man adds on to his house, and then he puts on another addition to his house. And he does this over and over and over again, and so now... The, the, the one acre is 95% made up of the rich man's house. So what's his cousin supposed to do? He is stuck there in that 5% of that acre. That's not fair. That's unjust. Now, in our day, we'd, we'd have all sorts of laws and everything and zoning to, to take care of those things, but this is how it was working. Rich men... We're snatching up land and stealing it, effectively, from the poor, pushing out other people. And why were they adding house to house? Just because. Just because they could. Just because they had money. Just because they wanted more stuff. And so that's what materialism is. Materialism is the love of possessions and wanting to get more and more accumulating possessions just because you like getting and having more stuff. Verse 8 reminded me of a, an event that happened when I was about 13 years old. Uh, I had, my family had just lived in El Salvador for four years. And El Salvador was a very poor country. Extended families would live together in a tiny house that maybe was like 
two bedrooms, and then a kitchen living area. And that's your house made out of cinder blocks and a tin roof. And you'd have maybe 12, 15 people living in that house. So I lived four years seeing how those people lived. We came back to America for a year when I was 13. And as we were driving down the highway, I saw these cars, Suburbans, Escalades, Hummers, drive past us. And I said to my parents, those cars are as big as the houses in El Salvador. And so I started playing a game with my parents. The game was called, How Many Salvadorans Could Live in That Car? Because three Salvadoran families could live inside what is practically the size of the Cadillac Escalades. And you see one lady driving this Escalade down the highway. And so I'm not saying it's a sin to have an Escalade or a big car or even a big house. But there is a problem with materialism in America. There are people who just love to acquire stuff. And they just want bigger, better, more expensive stuff just because they like to have it. And so, of course, God calls us to be generous and to not set up our treasures on this earth, but our treasures in heaven. And so we need to hear this warning. Woe to those who join house to house, who are accumulating possessions, storing them up on this earth. Well, the second woe is against drunkenness. Drunkenness, down in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. In this first mention of drunkenness, you see that these men are burning the candle at both ends. They are like hard workers. The hard worker rises early to get to work and stays up late to finish his work. But here in verse 11, the hard workers are hard drinkers. And that's how they're burning the candle at both ends. Waking up early and staying up late to drink. They're partying in verse 12. They're throwing big parties and playing loud music. And with their drunkenness, they forget the Lord. They ignore the Lord. So that's the first woe against drunkenness. Then you see it down in verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And so this next description of drunkenness is talking about strong men, heroes, heroes at how much they can drink. 
young men are using their strength, or we could say they are wasting their strength, partying and trying to see who can drink the most. And so other men praise them and look at them and call them heroes because they can chug. Valiant men, brave men are using their bravery to do stupidly risky things and almost kill themselves drinking. And so Isaiah is trying to say society is in a bad place when men, young men, and their bravery and their heroism is not spent defending their country. These men should be fighting for Israel. They should be defending their families. But instead, they're wasting their youth, drinking it away. Drunk at the frat parties. And isn't that just as applicable in our day? I was just listening a few weeks ago to somebody talking about this sort of crisis that we're in of of young men not wanting to join the military. And there are all kinds of reasons that we could talk about, and there are political reasons for that. And obviously, I'm not saying that every young man has to join the military or anything like that. But it does seem that we are in a cultural crisis of what a young man is supposed to be. We have young men who just want to party, who want to join the fraternities and be at the frat houses and do all these crazy things that young men do. Young men are wasting their strength, wasting their bravery, when they could be sacrificing themselves for the good of others, when they could be sacrificing themselves for their families and for the kingdom of God. The church needs young men who will be valiant, who will be heroes, but who won't take their strength for these silly things, but who will use their strength and their youth for serving Christ, serving his kingdom, serving their families, sacrificing for others. That's what a valiant man does. Woe to those young men wasting their lives at the frat houses. Then the third category of woe is to those who are entrenched in their sin. Uh, Verses 18 to 19. They're entrenched into their sin. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. And so the, the cord here in verse 18, first, the first cord is like a, an image of a well, drawing out a bucket out of a well with a cord. You're pulling a cord. The second image is drawing a cart, like a, an ox with a yoke, and he's got these ropes that he's pulling the cart with. And so the point of verse 18 is to show us that sin is hard work. 
you have to work to continue on in your sin. It's like drawing, pulling a cart with rope. So that's why I would use the word entrenchment. Sinners are so entrenched in their sin that they would rather keep pulling, even when it's exhausting, even when it's hard. Jesus comes to the sinner and says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And they're like, ah, no, I'd rather, I'd rather pull this cart because I can't let go of my sin. And then verse 19, they're scoffing at God. God says he's going to come. God says he's going to judge. Let's see it happen. And so in their scoffing and mockery, they continue entrenched in their sin, pulling it like with a cord. Well, then the, the final category of woe is in verses 20 and 21. The woe of moral confusion. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You can pretty much summarize these woes as being self-focused, self-absorbed. Young men are self-absorbed. They seek the pleasures of debauchery and drunkenness. People who adding house to house, they only care about themselves and acquiring possessions for themselves. People who are entrenched in sin, they don't care about loving others. They care about holding on to their sin. And you can summarize all of that in what we see in verse 20 and 21. Verse 21, they are wise in their own eyes. They're all about themselves. They think they're right about anything. And so that leads to verse 20. They call evil good and good evil. People want to call evil good because then they can continue in their sin. They can do whatever they want. It's a way to justify their own self-absorbed life. And so, verse 20, we want to focus on, Isaiah is saying that this nation, society, is confused morally, both in public morality and private morality. The metaphor of darkness and light and light and darkness is the public morality. Everybody can tell if it's light outside or dark outside. Everybody these days walks out at five o'clock at night and everybody complains. Everybody says, it's dark outside. It's dark outside and they say it because everybody can see that at five o'clock it's dark. And so here is a, a public morality, a public situation where everybody somehow gets together and says, hey, yeah, the sky is black now and it's five o'clock, but let's call it light. 
Let's say that it's light outside. So you see they're, they're redefining morality in a public way. But then the second one is in a private way. Calling bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Some of you, maybe you're your chocolate connoisseurs and some of you like the sweet chocolate. Some of you like the more bitter chocolate. Uh, the, the higher the percentage of cocoa that you see on that package of the bar means it's more bitter. It's got less milk and less sugar. Uh, now, pretend you, you can't see like what color the chocolate bar is or anything like that, but for the purposes of what we're talking about here, if I had a chocolate bar in my hand, how could you tell that it was either bitter or sweet? Not looking at the package, not looking at the color of the bar, but the best way to tell would be to stick it in your mouth and taste it. And when you taste the chocolate, you would know this is like 90% cocoa or this is like 40%. This is milk chocolate. This is really sweet. And so what he's saying here is that this is morality being redefined on a private, on a personal level. This, yeah, people, people say that this is sweet. But to me, I decide that this is bitter. And people say that this sin is supposed to be bitter. But you know what? I'm just going to decide for myself that this is sweet. This makes me feel good. This helps me feel fulfilled. So you see you have morality redefined privately and publicly. Where publicly people can say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what my personal opinion is. What matters is that people have the right to choose. That they have the freedom to do what they want and to express themselves. And so publicly, we're all just going to say that it's light outside. So we can apply this to our day, and I think it's important to apply this, what the Word of God says to what we're going through today. And so I want to focus on the big two issues that you probably all know and know what I'm going to say. The big two issues in our day where our society defines evil as good and good as evil. And those are the LGBTQ issues and the issue of abortion. And I'm not focusing on these because I think that you all don't believe what the Bible says about these things and that you need to be taught what the Bible says. I know that you agree with this, but it's important that as we come to God's word in such a clear warning like this, that we be reinforced as to what the Bible says about this. And that we reinforce this, not just for us, but for the coming generations. And for those of you who are younger, you need to hold fast to these things. This is, this is my hope for you, is that you would strongly hold to these truths of God's word when the whole world around you is trying to get you to drink Kool-Aid and is trying to tell you that it's actually light outside. 
You need to wholeheartedly believe these things that the Bible says. One of the verses that I think is so relevant for our day is in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, which talks about how the generation of Joshua dies. And the whole explanation for what happens in the book of Joshua, you can really trace back to verse 10 of Judges chapter 2. All that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. One generation is all it takes to lose the truth of the word of God. Because Joshua's generation failed to teach the next one to know the Lord and the work that he had done for Israel. And so parents and members of the church and pastors, we have a responsibility to tell the next generation what the word of God says. And again, I know you all believe these things, but to hold on to these things strongly. And so the first is the whole issue of the LGBT things that are going on in our day. Of course, we all know the Bible says God created man male and female, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That is the clear teaching of the Bible. But how did we get to the day when there are proclaimed Christians and churches, people in the church, who are saying that this whole range of LGBT things is okay, that evil is good? How did we get here? We know that the world is going to say what it's going to say. We know that there are churches who are false churches, the churches that are flying the rainbow flags outside of their buildings. They denied the gospel. They denied the word of God about 100 years ago or more, by and large. That's why they are where they are. But in our day, there's even among those who are calling themselves evangelicals who are wrestling and debating and talking about these, these issues. And so there's a, there's a movement going on in our day among people who would call themselves conservative. There is an issue in the, the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. They came out with a report on sexuality in 2021. Uh, as far as I've read, it, it does seem like a good report. And so I'm not saying the PCA itself is bad. But they came out with this report because they did this whole investigation. There's this whole controversy, especially over this one particular pastor and church in the PCA who was saying that uh, it is okay to have same-sex attraction, desires, uh, identity, some would say, a lifestyle, some would say, just as long as you're celibate, just as long as you don't act on it, 
So you're, you're not in a, in a physical relationship, but you can have all the desires. And this is what I want, especially you young people, to be aware of. That this is the way that people in what seem to be conservative churches are calling evil good. Uh, there's a lot more we could talk about, talking uh, you know, one-on-one or whatever, but basically it, it's what's called Side B Christianity. And so you can read all about Side B Christianity. This argument that it's okay to have this identity or desire as long as you don't act on it. And Isaiah would say, woe to those who call this good. No, these desires themselves are sinful. They're a result of the fall. This is not the way God created man and woman to, to be and to interact. And God created them male and female. This is how we must live in accordance with what the Bible calls us to do. So there's that issue that we need to be aware of. Then there is the issue of abortion. And here's another area where you think, how did these, all these people who supposedly call themselves Christians, and we say that we uh, are, are based on these Christian values and principles, how did we get to this point where now we are enshrining in state constitutions these rights that people say are a right to abortion. Well, I think there are, there are a lot of things that happen, but the bottom line is that people are not fully convinced in their minds of what abortion really is and why it's wrong. Abortion is the killing, it's the murder of innocent people. It's the murder of innocent babies, innocent according to the law of God, uh, the, the law of the land. They haven't done anything uh, to be punished, to be executed. And they are being killed. And that is wrong. So if we really think this way, if we really talk this way, we don't use this argument with everything else. Yeah, you know, I think people should have the right to kill their spouses when they get angry at them, when they don't want them anymore. I personally think it's wrong, but I think people should have the right to choose that, that ability. And we don't talk that way, right? And so something has happened where, where we are desensitized to what is actually going on. And so we need to remember, whoa, Woe to those who call this evil good. Woe to those who are calling this darkness light. See past how people are calling this light. See it for the evil that it really is. I remember reading John Owen. He wrote a book called Indwelling Sin. And he wrote this in 1667. His, one of his proofs that there is indwelling sin in mankind is the reality of abortion. He said, even animals have a natural instinct to care for their young. Even 
animals are not going to kill their own young, but protect and defend their young. So he says, what would make someone go against this natural instinct that a parent has to take care of his child, his or her child? It has to be this corruption of sin that not only, he says, goes against nature, but propels it past to do something even worse than, you know, oh, I'm not just going to defend my child, but I'm actually going to harm them and kill them. Only the power of indwelling sin could make someone do such a thing. So here's one line. He says, sin causes people to deal with their own children in a way that a good man could not be paid to deal with his dog. A good man could not be paid to deal with his dog in the kinds of things that parents do to their children. And so, we need to see the woe that comes upon those who call this good. So these are the things that bring woe. These are the things in our day. Materialism, drunkenness, entrenchment in sin, moral confusion over sin. Next we want to see what does this woe mean? And so in verses 13 to 17, in verses 24 to 30, God outlines the judgment that is coming uh, towards Israel because of all of these things that they are, they are doing. He calls woe upon them. The word woe just means anguish. It sounds like the word. It's what someone says when they are suffering, when they are being destroyed. They say woe when they are calling out because of the pain that they're in. They're, they're in woe. And so this is the type of woe that comes upon the people of God. Verses 13 to 17 is the first description of the judgment. He says they will go into exile in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he says, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure. And the multitude will go down. The revelers and he who exults in earth. You see the picture? You see a picture of like the earth being opened up and people just sliding down this hole into Sheol. Sheol is more than just a place of death and, and the grave, but in verse 16 he says, God is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And so the purpose, the point here is that he is showing his justice. He's demonstrating his justice by bringing the curse. This is not just the grave. This is hell where God places his curse upon sinners. This is the judgment that sinners face. Back in verse 14, he says, Sheol opens its mouth beyond measure, almost as if, there are no borders there. It doesn't mean literally that there are no borders to hell. But he's saying this is so wide 
This is such a big place. The, the broad path to destruction is so broad that it's like you can't even see the borders. This is how big hell is. Multitudes and multitudes are going down to this place where you can't even see the border. Well, then the, the last part where he describes the judgment is verses 24 to 30. Uh, 24 and 25, God brings uh, his uh, destruction, his anger. And then verses 26 to 30 are describing the army that's coming in exile to, to bring them into exile. And the end is there at the end of verse 30. Darkness and distress, light darkened by its clouds. Those who call darkness light, light darkness, will find light darkened. They will be in darkness. And these words are meant to bring back your mind to Genesis 1, before creation, when it was nothing, desolation and waste, Darkness covered the face of the deep. That's what it's going to be like again when God's destruction comes. So all of these woes, all of these sins, all these things that bring woe, bring the judgment of God. Well, as we come sort of to the end, I just want to apply then what all this means to us. So I ask the question, where is your woe? And I'm not asking, where is your judgment from God? Is the judgment of God coming upon you? Although that's worth thinking about if you're not a Christian. But I'm asking for you, the church, as Christians, where is your woe in the sense of, do you feel the woe here? Do you feel the pain that Isaiah is meant to bring in front of you? Does it pain you to think about and read about these things? As we talk about the sins of our culture, I don't want you to say, oh yeah, that, that was great. He really called out those those." dummies. He really called out those sinners and how they're calling evil good and good evil. But do you see what's happening to all these sinners? Do you see what's coming to our world? The first way that I hope this brings you pain, this brings me pain, is that it weans you from sin. Reading these verses should wean you from your own sin. We're going to see in the very next chapter, you know what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. Right after we have this long description of six woes against Israel, Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lost. Isaiah, when he sees the holy God, is aware of his own sin. 
And so as we read about sin in this passage, we should feel woe over the heinousness of our own sin. And that there are many ways in which you and I maybe have previously fallen into these sins. Maybe you still fall into these sins. But you and I both know how we can call darkness light and light darkness. You and I both know how we can often make excuses for our sin. We can downplay our sins. We can compare our sins to others and say it's not so bad. And in all these ways, all we're doing is just saying, yep, that evil that God calls evil, it's good for me. I'm justified in doing that. And so you should hear the woe that is coming upon you for your own sin. And if you're going to fight against sin, this is how you need to think about sin. That sin brings the judgment of God, and God's judgment is terrible. That the world and in your own heart are going to try to make sin look a lot better than it actually is. But if you want to fight sin, you need to rip off the mask, and you need to see the heinousness of sin. It's a good thing to spend time thinking about how bad sin is and thinking about what judgment is like. Think about how you, outside of Christ, would be there with hell opening its mouth wide and you sliding down with no way back no chance to turn away. No choice to, to change your mind at this point. But you're sinking along with the multitude down into hell. And you should put yourself there. Because without Christ and without the Holy Spirit coming into your life, this is what would have happened to you. You would be under the woe of God. And so you don't want to continue in that sin that you know brings judgment so we should be weaned from our sin the second way to apply this is that we should weep over sinners we should weep over sinners Robert Murray McChain Scottish pastor in the 1800s had a great revival and was part of a revival and lots of people loved his ministry. Someone visited his church once and asked uh, the guy who was in charge of the building, they said, what is the secret to McShane's ministry? And the man took, McShane, uh, took the visitor to McShane's study and told him to sit at the desk. And he said, put your head down. Put out your hands and weep. So the man, I guess he did that. And then he took the visitor then to the pulpit. And he said, stand in the pulpit, put out your hands and weep. And he said, that is the secret to McShane's ministry. McShane believed in hell. He believed in God's judgment against sin. 
He believed that God's woe was coming upon sinners. And so he prayed for them. He wept in his prayers for them. And then he preached the gospel to them. And he called them and he begged them to be saved from an eternity in hell. So that's the challenge for us. You don't have to be a preacher. Whether you literally weep with tears or not, is this the attitude of your heart over sinners who are going to hell? If you go to somewhere like Auschwitz concentration camp, or you see people on the news when a school shooting has happened, you go to a concentration camp, you can't help but weep. And when a shooting happens, even if you don't know the people who are there, if you witness something like that, you weep and you weep and you weep. And it's because it's at those times when you come face to face with a reality, it hits you that this world is evil and that people are sinners and you know this is not how God designed the world. The world is evil and God's judgment is coming upon this evil world. Is that our attitude towards sinners? Do do we take to heart the reality of God's judgment against them? If we were face to face with something like that, a, a shooting, we would weep. And yet, with the issues that we've talked about, like, like abortion, we know that this is happening. We know that I can, I can drive to Troy and I can drive, down, drive right beside Planned Parenthood and you can eat at a restaurant about 100 feet away from Planned Parenthood. And, and we know that evil is happening. And the people called this evil good. And woe is coming upon these people. Does it make us weep and plead with sinners? When we see people in their LGBT stuff, and you know it's, some, it's like so ridiculous to us that, that sometimes people, people just like, they laugh at it and they want to mock it. Do we realize this is a world full of evil? People are calling evil good. People have drunk the Kool-Aid. So what is our responsibility? Laugh at them? Mock them? No, we should weep in prayer and in pleading, evangelism, calling upon them to flee from the wrath to come. In Colossians 3, 6, Paul says, on account of these things, the works of the flesh, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Do you understand what these things are? Do you get your definition of sin from what the Bible calls sin, what Isaiah calls sin. Don't justify sin 
by, by seeing that everybody in America lives like this or does this. But what does the Bible say is sin? Because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. May Isaiah help us to understand what these things are. And may he help us to understand what it means that the wrath of God is coming. Believe it. And we need to live accordingly. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you that you are the God of truth, that you have revealed yourself, your law, your moral will, that you speak through your word. We thank you that you have sent prophets like Isaiah to warn us. Oh God, we pray that you would give us the help of your spirit to not be self-deceived to not justify ourselves and justify sin. Give us wisdom. Give us consciences that are not seared, but that feel the weight of our sin. And as we see the sins of those around us, help us to have eternal perspective. Give us a perspective that is one like you have. And we would regard no one according to the flesh, but the way that you see them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to plead with sinners, to flee from the wrath to come. We ask in Jesus Christ's name.